Hello? Okay, so back to my story, <laughs> going along the causeway. And um, it was about six o'clock at night and it was in winter and it was starting to get dark and there was this build-up of cars and I could see them, just all these taillights ahead of me. And it was just like it was happening in slow motion, this collective crash of cars and it was just incredible. I could see one crash and then another and it was coming closer and closer towards me. So I slammed on my brakes and I braked well in time but unfortunately the huge F100 four-wheel drive behind me didn't brake in time and I, I had a little blue Hyundai and it just went right through my back and pushed me across the medium strip, literally onto the other side of the oncoming traffic. And I just felt completely out of control. It was absolutely terrifying. I'm shaking just remembering it. It was a horrendous experience. And I don't know, just lately, I reckon it's been pretty tough for a lot of people I wonder if a lot of people have felt that same sense of being out of control. There's just so much going on at the moment. Um, the world's gone crazy. You know, on a worldwide scale, we have things like a bird flu virus, which they've predicted could wipe out 100 million people. I mean, I just can't get my head around that kind of number. But they're calling it the possibility of a pandemic. And then we have terrorism and um, we have the destruction of our environment and we have crushing poverty in so many of the world's countries and I have to tell you I'm enjoying the Commonwealth Games but there's a big part of me and I'm going to be a party pooper here but there's a big part of me that's saying it's a bit obscene you know just how much how much we're spending on these games in the Commonwealth where the majority of people participating, you know, that live in these countries can't even put food on their table. That's just my little comment there. But, um, you know, I just think there are, uh, there's crushing poverty and yet there's obscene wealth elsewhere. So, so the world's gone crazy. And then, you know, on a more local level, there's you know, all the things that we experience in our daily lives. And just, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and sometimes when we um, are faced with a really acute health scare, it can be absolutely traumatic. But then some people are faced with chronic health, ill health every day, and that can be grinding and wearing away. And sometimes we can just feel like, Lord, the world's gone crazy. I feel out of control. And where are you? And tonight when we, we look at John 18, verse 1 to 14, it can almost feel like this scenario that Gemma read was just like, Lord, where are you? Here's the Messiah, the one that was promised to come and save Israel. And he is a refugee in an olive grove and he's been pursued by an army of men to be arrested. Where's God? Is, are you out of control, God? Has your plan gone wrong? Well, I want to tell you that by the end of tonight, I really hope that if you go away with nothing else 
go away with the absolute immovable truth that no matter what your circumstances, God is always in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to give you praise and glory tonight for your word. And we just want to say, Jesus, that we love you and that we need to keep coming back to you and reaffirming and reasserting the fact that you are sovereign. You are all-powerful, Lord, and that you have the very, very best for us, no matter how things might seem and appear at times, that you are always in control, Jesus, of our lives. Lord, help us daily to remember to surrender our lives afresh to you, to say, Jesus, be Lord of my life today. Be sovereign, be in control, yet not my will, but yours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we have um, the context for tonight's message from uh, John 18. But just before we go into the passages, I, just, I, I need to just kind of give a bit of a context for it because it's really significant that of all the Gospels, the four Gospels, John is the only one that starts off his Gospel with Jesus not being born as a baby but actually as the Creator. In chapter 1 of John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and had his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory. So John starts his gospel off talking about Jesus, the context, as the creator. And I think it's significant for us as, we, uh, as you read through John and see the life of Jesus, we've got to keep this central truth in mind that Jesus is the creator. Yes, he came to earth as a baby, but he is the creator and he is in control. The other thing about what Gemma read about Jesus' arrest, and this is the context, and his ultimate betrayal, his ultimate trial and his ultimate death is that Jesus knew all along he was actually going to die. In John 3, uh, verse 14, he says, For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. So way, way back, in chapter 3 in John, Jesus predicted this time. He predicted the time he would die and he predicted the way he would die. In John 5, 16, there were many numerous opportunities to, before chapter 18 where Jesus was actually threatened by death. The uh, authorities wanted to kill him uh, much further uh, back than we see in John 18 at his arrest. In John chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father never stops working, so why should I? So the Jewish leaders tried all the more to kill him. In addition to disobeying the Sabbath rules, 
he had spoken of God as his father, thereby making himself equal with God. So it wasn't the fact that he did the miracles, it was the fact that he equated himself with God, that the authorities planned to kill him well, well in advance of this particular context. And so it goes on right through the chapters in 7 and 8 and 10 and 11 and 12. There are different examples of where Jesus was confronted by the authorities and they schemed to kill him. They physically wanted to stone him at one point, but somehow it wasn't his time. So he he somehow escaped. And so all of this is such an important background because it actually helps us to understand that Jesus actually predicted the actual time of his arrest. And even though it appeared like things were out of control, he was very much in control. In John chapter 11, it says, Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together to discuss the situation. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs miraculous signs. If we leave him alone, the whole nation will follow him and then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said, How can you be so stupid? Why should the whole nation be destroyed? Let this one man die for all the people. And a little later on it says he was inspired to say this. So Jesus' arrest was actually preordained by God. So Jesus was a marked man and there was plenty of opportunity to kill him, but it just wasn't his time. In Matthew 26, verse 3 to 5, it says why the high priests didn't want it to be at this time. See, you've got to imagine the context. It was actually at the Passover. And the Passover was a bit like our public holiday, um, our Easter, where crowds would flood into Jerusalem to celebrate in remembrance of the Passover. And so the chief priests didn't want Jesus to be arrested, particularly at this time, because just a few days earlier, he'd been hailed as king of Israel. And the people had lined the streets with palms and had waved palms as he rode through on a donkey. And so Jesus at this point was a very popular figure to the crowds in Jerusalem. So there was people streaming in. We've got to imagine this. And the last thing the Jewish priests wanted was to arrest Jesus at this particular point. Matthew 26 says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people met together in the palace of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas. They planned to arrest Jesus by treachery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, so that there will not be a riot among the people. To, do, to arrest Jesus during the holiday season would be foolish. The people had received him as king of Israel and it would have been such an unpopular move. But Jesus was in control, even of his arrest. 
In John 13, it says, Now Jesus was in great anguish of spirit, and he exclaimed, The truth is that one of you will betray me. And verse 26 says, It is the one to whom I give the bread dipped in sauce. Already in that upper room, when the supper, the last supper was being held, Judas, who had his plan worked out that he would secretly go and talk to the authorities to plan to arrest Jesus, he was found out. Jesus, in front of his disciples, dipped the bread in and handed it to Judas. So even though Judas' plan was to do this in secret, his plan was foiled. So there was this tiny window of opportunity to arrest Jesus, unfortunately now during the Passover, which was not what he or the high priest wanted. And as Judas was hurrying away to do his dirty deeds, we see our Lord leaving that upper room and going with his disciples to a predetermined place, which was the garden, the olive grove, or the garden of Gethsemane. So we have John 18, and verse 1 says, After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples. Now the things that Jesus was saying was actually what Mason told us about last week. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer for his followers. And he just finished saying this to his disciples after he'd broken bread with them. And then they left and crossed the Kidron Valley, walked out of Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and went to a grove of olive trees. And I guess after a while, when you've been reading the Bible, you start to ask yourself some questions. Lord, why did John mention Kidron Valley? Why didn't he just say, Jesus left with his disciples and went to the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the Kidron Valley was actually just outside of Jerusalem and in the valley was a drain and the drain ran directly from the temple altar down into the ravine, into the Kidron Valley and it drained away the blood of sacrifices. And at that time of the year, particularly at Passover, can you imagine more than 200,000 lambs were slain so when Jesus and his band crossed the Kidron, it was red with the blood of sacrifice. It was so symbolic. His disciples would not have known what was to come, but Jesus knew. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew that he was going to be tried. He was going to be tortured, mocked, and then crucified. But he, symbolically, was going to be the last lamb and he now sits in revelation 5 on the throne in heaven as the sacrificial lamb he is the ultimate sacrifice so it was so symbolic that jesus crossed that valley once and for all no more need for further sacrifices because our lord was the ultimate sacrifice and then he goes into the garden with his 11 disciples. And 
a fellow called Bob Deffenbaugh, who's a theologian, just kind of gives us a bit of a symbolism about the fact that it was a garden. This was where Christ chose to be arrested. And he says, the first Adam began life in a garden. Christ, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Saviour overcame sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In the Garden of Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. And in the Garden of Eden, the sword was drawn. Remember the cherubim guarded the garden after Adam and Eve had to flee. In Gethsemane, we heard tonight from Gemma, the sword was sheathed. Put that sword away, Peter. So the garden was significant. Jesus was in control. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had gone there many times with his disciples, we're told, in verse 2. But John doesn't tell us in between verses 1 and 2 is a huge gap which is expounded in the other three Gospels and this is Christ's passion where Christ went to the garden and went alone to pray and said to his disciples, stay watch, watch out for me. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 37 to 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And in Mark 14, 35, it says that Christ fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Evidently, our Lord was in so much agony that he would just cast himself to the ground so many times and Luke says being in anguish he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So great was our Lord's agony at the coming dread that he actually broke out in a bloody sweat. Now I've, I've never seen that. I don't know what that extreme anguish would be like but it was here in this setting that this happened to our Lord just before his arrest. And the agony was not because of the pain, the physical pain that he was to endure, but it was because of the sin that he knew he had to take on board for the whole world. It was to make sense of the chaos and the out-of-controlness that this world feels like. And Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. And I, just, I can just imagine this scene, and I just want you to imagine it for a while, for a moment. Here we have our Lord with his 11 disciples, he's just wrestled with what is about to happen in enormous anguish. And then coming out of Jerusalem is a cohort or a detachment 
of Roman soldiers and we know that a, a detachment was about 500 men. And then there were also temple guards and there were also just onlookers and interested people. So there could have been at least 600 people with torches, clubs and lanterns coming to try and capture Jesus. And I just think, wow, what an amazing sight that must have looked like, especially to the disciples. Lord, what's happening? Like, your plan has just gone totally out of control. This isn't meant to happen. You're meant to be the Messiah. You're meant to rescue us. You're meant to save us. And, and here we are being surrounded by a contingent of 600 men ready to arrest all of us. What was going on? It just didn't make sense. And I think of, uh, when I think of that, I don't know if many of you remember, years ago there was um, a production called Jesus Christ Superstar and there was a song, it was called Jesus Christ Superstar and, and the words went something like, you know, Jesus, what, what are you doing in such a strange land? You know, you could have devised a better plan. Don't get me wrong, I only want to know, but Jesus Christ Superstar, do you think you're who they say you are? And I think of those words and I think maybe the disciples really thought that at that point. You know, here was chaos. Here was things being out of control. And yet listen to what verses 4 to 6 say. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and all, the scriptures say, all fell to the ground. And I just think being confronted by Jesus, Jesus, the scriptures say, knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He was in control of this scenario. He knew and it's interesting that the crowd had been led to believe just a few days earlier that Jesus was the king, the king of Jews, the king of Israel. And yet here the crowd were looking not for a king, they were looking for a man, Jesus of Nazareth. That's how they addressed him. He was a man. They wanted him to be a man. They wanted to put to death this person that had been such a thorn in their flesh, that had created such um, fervour amongst the crowds. So Jesus of Nazareth, they addressed him as a man. And Jesus said, I am he. And some theologians have said this is related very directly back to God's statement to Moses in Exodus 3, 14, where when Moses addresses God, he says, I am, I am. It's a very similar statement. I am he. And what happened? They just all fell backwards, all 600 of them. And you know, when we're confronted with the living God, 
there's no other response but to just fall to our knees in wonder and in awe. To just fall backwards and say, Lord, you're just amazing. Lord, you are incredible. Lord, you are all sovereign. You are in control. They went to encounter a man and they met God in that place. Jesus was in control. In John 10, 17 to 18, he says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So Jesus knew the time of his arrest. He knew where he would be arrested to the human eye, it looked like everything was out of control. But Jesus was in control. He said that I had not lost a single one of those you gave me. He told the officers to leave his disciples alone. Can you believe that Jesus can be in control of your life right now? Can you believe that no matter what your life looks like, that he'll never lose you. No matter what your life might be like. No matter how hard it might seem. You know, there have been millions of Christians that can testify to our Lord that despite how their lives have looked, they can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is in control. Sometimes it's hard to know that when we're right in the midst of turmoil and hardship and suffering and maybe ill health or financial distress. Often it's when we look back and we see, oh Lord, you had a plan, you had a purpose for that. I couldn't see it at the time, but and now it makes sense. Joni Erica Tater was only in her 20s, or 19, I think, when she had a swimming accident and she broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. And she was a beautiful Christian woman. And one would say, you know, Lord, why did that happen to such a beautiful young woman at such a young stage of life? But, but that woman has gone on to be a shining light for God's grace and courage and she has just been such an example to so many others. Many people can testify to the Lord's power in their life in times of difficulties. Peter, no doubt, would have been absolutely so angry with the fact that there in front of his eyes when Judas comes up to Jesus in front of the cohort of officers and army and kisses Jesus on the cheek and seen that betrayal, pulled out his sword and swiped the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? 
you know, we might be tempted at times to lash out, to say, Lord, this is so unfair, this is unjust, I'm angry. And, and sometimes that's right. Sometimes we need to do that. But God has a different plan. And, you know, Peter's action could have thwarted the church's whole history from that moment onwards because Jesus' plan was not to be saved. His plan was to die. And Luke says that even as he said this, a mob approached led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples, Judas walked over to Jesus and greeted him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, how can you betray me now, the son of man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords and one of them slashed at the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, which was Peter. But Jesus said, don't resist anymore. And he touched the place where the man's ear had been and healed him. Don't resist anymore. They're prophetic words. I just wonder if there's anyone here tonight that has been resisting the Lord's call on your life. The Lord says, don't resist anymore. Time is running out. Take a stand for Jesus tonight. For those of us that know and love the Lord, sometimes we resist what Jesus is doing in our lives. And here we're told, don't resist anymore. Surrender your lives afresh to Jesus. Some of you tonight may need to do that, to recommit, re-surrender your life to our Lord. And I marvel at the fact that here Jesus was about to be arrested and he knew what was coming and yet he still took time to heal a man's ear. Not only is our Lord powerful and gracious, but he is merciful even in his final moments. Jesus is in control. Even when there seems to be chaos, it's only he who is able to heal and restore. Even by our own best and perhaps honourable efforts, we continually get it wrong. But Jesus doesn't. Not even confronted with the greatest challenge and anguish in his life, he's still in control. He's still able to restore when nothing and no one else can. You know, Caiaphas thought in winding up that he had worked everything out perfectly. He was going to have this man arrested in a mock trial and killed and that would be the end. And his words in verse 14 are very prophetic. When Jesus says, shall I not drink of this cup? He goes on to say, the soldiers and their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus, tied him up. First they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, better that one should die for all. One did die for all, but not the way Caiaphas had imagined. Caiaphas had imagined this man would die 
a physical death and that would be the end. Well, we have the victory because that's not the end of the story as we all know. Yes, one man did die for all. He died for all our sins so we could have life and we could have freedom and we could have life eternally with our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Yes, our Lord went through his Gethsemane. He went through suffering. There's a beautiful poem by C.E. McCartney that says, well, it's called Gethsemane, and it says, Down shadowy lanes, across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams, behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt font of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may, you cannot miss it on your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey soon or late must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine, but thine, who only pray, let this cup pass and cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. All of us have had our own Gethsemanes, but we have a God that knows exactly what that's like and he knows exactly what your Gethsemanes are like. And we also have a God that is in control because it's not the end of the story. I remember a few years ago there was a shocking thing that happened in Pakistan where a Christian missionary family called the Staines were um, ministering to the local people and the husband and the sons were trapped in a car and the car was set on fire and they were burned. It was shocking. And yet the mother and the daughter had continued to minister to a leper colony there. And what resulted out of that horror was that more and more people came to a relationship with Jesus. And it actually happened that it, there was a breakthrough in that community where nothing else would have caused that breakthrough. Now, I'm not saying God did that, but he used that situation for, for his greater glory. God, no matter what, is always in control. Gethsemane was not a tragedy and neither are our Gethsemanes. Life may be dark, tragedy may come and at times it might feel as if the whole world is out of control but this is not the end. God is in control and he never leaves us alone no matter what. He's given us his spirit, the spirit to guide us in a world that is out of control. His plan, devised at the beginning of time, was that these events should and would happen. And there is nothing that God has not known about within our lives. Nothing. Can you believe that? 
despite how you may think or feel or see about your life or this crazy world, as one who's also lived life with its ups and downs, I can truly say our God is a great, great God and he is in control. Let's pray.